0: There are exactly three musicals that I actually like. The Phantom of the Opera is one of them. As my wife is very used to by now, when autumn rolls around, I start playing the Phantom's ominous music. It's sort of a childhood tradition. For some reason, during the days leading up to Halloween, my mom used to blast the 1986 version on the living room speakers. So, I suppose it's learned behavior. It's as much a part of Halloween for me as Dracula, and frankly, I think the Phantom is creepier. I was fortunate enough to see the Phantom of the Opera live in Toronto when I was 10 years old, and I'll never forget it because it scared the crap out of me. As soon as the lifeless body of the murdered stagehand came swinging down from the rafters in a noose, I knew this was a different kind of show. So for this Halloween season, my favorite season of the year by the way, I wondered If perhaps I could do an almost episode on the inspiration behind the novel. I've always heard that the author claimed it was based on a true story, but I never actually looked into it. I was pleasantly surprised with what I found, and hopefully you will be too. So close your eyes and start a journey to a strange new world as we discover the real story behind the music of the night in this almost episode Finding the Phantom. The opera ghost really existed. Well, at least that's how theater critic, investigative journalist, and author Gaston Leroux opens his story, The Phantom of the Opera. It wasn't uncommon, especially for the time, for authors to try to add some intrigue to their works by claiming some historicity behind the tales they tell. Hell, even today, some of our favorite movies do the same thing, based on a true story, right? The Phantom was originally published as a serial in a French daily newspaper in 1909. By March of 1910, it was compiled and published as a single-volume book, easily finding an audience among fans of gothic horror like Dracula and Frankenstein and the like. Leroux, the mind behind The Phantom, was already a successful author by the time it was published. His career was one of necessity, as he had squandered his substantial inheritance and so he found work for a Paris newspaper where he started as a drama critic and a courtroom reporter. He eventually became an accomplished journalist, even personally covering the 1905 Russian Revolution. Being an avid fan of Edgar Allan Poe and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he crafted his Phantom de la Bra in a darkly romantic tone. The book was successful in France and even more successful in America, becoming an instant classic. Two years before his death, Gaston Leroux even got to see his masterpiece reworked for the silver screen in 1925. The character of the Phantom was played by the immortally creepy Lon Chaney. And seriously, he's the scariest Phantom to date. Over the next 60 years, many more film adaptations would follow. And then in 1986, Andrew Lloyd Webber gave the world his Phantom of the Opera musical. Allegedly, I couldn't find any first-hand accounts of this... Gaston Leroux, on his deathbed in 1927, held firm that his story of the Phantom was absolutely true. So, was it true? Surely not, right? But perhaps there's more truth to it than you might think. To get to the bottom of these questions, we must start with the real life inspiration for the haunt of the Phantom, an opera house in Paris, the Palais Garnier, to be specific. As it stands today, the Palais Garnier has 1,979 seats and is the largest stage in all of Europe, and it's stunningly beautiful to boot. In Leroux's story, the opera house has endless subterranean passages allowing the phantom to appear and disappear at will. It was in these dank, candlelit passages that he led the young Christine die through, eventually reaching an underground lake, then, by boat, to his creepy dwelling. This was the place where he devised his devilish plots against the theater owners and where he crafted his Don Juan triumphant, his music of the night. It was a deep, dark place, far from the garish light of day. It was where Christine ripped the mask from the face of the Phantom as he feverishly played the organ. Originally commissioned in 1861 by Emperor Napoleon III, the architect, Charles Garnier, put everything he had into the task that lay before him. He knew it would be the crowning achievement of his career. On October 27, 1861, the excavation began for Garnier's opulent designs, but the size of the structure required a much deeper foundation than most buildings at the time. And so deeper and deeper the pits went, but there was a problem. The water table was irregularly high, so steam pumps were brought in and ran day and night, yet the water level remained. It appears Garnier had run into a subterranean body of water. Undeterred, Garnier doubled up the design for the superstructure's foundations to protect it from erosion. As for the sudden lake he had discovered, Garnier worked in a cistern in the deepest most parts of the basement to control the water under the building. You can find pictures of this cistern on Google, and it's really creepy, but it's nothing like the underground lagoon dwelling from the story. Leroux claims that in these deep vaults of the Palais Garnier, the hidden chambers of the Phantom were discovered along with a skeleton. And like the underground lake, there's a kernel of truth. You see, construction on the Palais Garnier was suddenly halted in 1870 with the onset of the Franco-Prussian War. Prussia and the German states were empire-building, and Napoleon III could not condone such a rising of power. But France was pummeled in battle after battle, and Napoleon III was even captured. The French Second Empire became the Third French Republic, and Paris itself was laid under siege. With the lack of government in Paris, a more revolutionary government took control of the City of Lights. They were known as the Paris Commune, and the Commune was very radical. They hated the church, and of course, they promised a proletariat utopia. After a couple months of ruling Paris, the regular French army bulldozed their dominion in a horribly bloody street fight. The death figures were around 20,000 men, women, and children massacred in the fighting. Karl Marx himself was greatly influenced by the rising of the Paris Commune and held them up as martyrs of a future government. During the Commune's short reign, the dungeons of the Palais Garnier were allegedly used as hideouts, prisons, and shelter for the revolutionaries. In the years following the bloody uprising, bodies were often found long decayed years later in basements and dark, unexplored cellars all around Paris. In Leroux's book, the phantom even acknowledges using the tricks of the revolutionaries, quote, you think you have been following me, you great clod, whereas in fact I have been following you, and you cannot conceal anything from me. The Communard's passage is mine, and mine alone. End quote. One of the editors of a recent edition of The Phantom says quote, Surely in a building that has 1,942 keys, there were people who knew how to get down to these cellars without permission of the authorities. Perhaps there were even those who made these undergrounds their regular haunt. End quote. However, there is no evidence that any skeleton was recovered at the Opera House. By 1874, things had settled down, and the Third Republic barely decided to keep Garnier on as the architect. The Grand Theater was officially inaugurated on January 5, 1875. European royalty attended the spectacle, and as one approaches the Opera House, they would first be struck by the grand columns and arches capped with two golden figures piercing the sky. One is poetry, the other harmony crowning above them both is Apollo. The interior is of spectacular grandeur, winding corridors and grand staircases and multiple landings and velvet and gold leaf covering everything. No matter where one stands, they could not escape the gaze of some cherubim or nymph. The grand foyer is crowned with exquisite paintings, and the grand staircase of red and green marble diverges into two flights. The paintings above the staircase depict, quote, the triumph of Apollo, the enchantment of music deploying its charms, Minerva fighting brutality watched by the gods of Olympus, and the city of Paris receiving the plan of the new opera, end quote. Every detail of the opera house was of deep significance to Garnier. On the inauguration night, there, the proud architect stood atop his staircase, welcoming his guests. But of all the ornamentals of the Palais Garnier... The most infamous is the chandelier. The seven-ton bronze and crystal masterpiece was designed personally by Garnier. Of this crowning jewel, Garnier said, quote, What else could fill the theater with such joyous life? What else could offer the variety of forms that we have in the patterns of the flames, in these groups and tiers of points of light, these wild hues of gold flecked with bright spots, and these crystalline highlights? Quote. But phantom fans know the fate of the chandelier. According to Leroux's story, the Phantom was able to let it fall upon the audience in a fit of vengeance, killing a concierge of the theater. But Leroux isn't telling the accurate story. The chandelier was held up by massive counterweights, metal discs suspended above the ceiling. On May 20th, 1896, at 8.57pm, a short circuit in the wiring melted the cables holding the counterweights and the metal discs began smashing through the ceiling, raining dead weight upon the people below. Many were injured, but one woman was completely crushed, smashed into a pulp, leaving her daughter in a state of shock, wandering the theater splattered with blood. Turns out Gaston Leroux had inspiration for his main characters, too, and he didn't exactly change their names to protect the innocent. It seems the coquette Christine Die was actually based on a young opera singer named Christine Nielsen, Both the real and fictional Christine were Swedish, both had poor fathers, both left their homes and were taken in by a benefactor, both made their way to Paris, although the real Christine never performed at the Palais Garnier. But she was present for a deadly theatrical disaster. Inclined to retire from the stage, Christine was to give a farewell concert from the Grand Hotel in Stockholm. 50,000 people turned out to hear this angel of music but a panic ensued from a rumor that some nearby scaffolding was collapsing, and a stampede ensued, trampling 19 people to death. But what about the titular character? What about the phantom? Well, there exists a rumor, and it's nothing more than a rumor, that one of Garnier's own subcontractors was an individual named Eric Vachon, and he was said to be horribly disfigured by some terrible disease. He asked Garnier if he could build an apartment for himself in the foundations of the theater. Garnier obviously refused, And Eric went missing, never to be heard from again. Many have even hypothesized that if such an Eric did exist, he likely suffered from a form of porphyria, a skin disease that, in extreme cases, can leave the sufferer vulnerable to sunlight. The skin scars and stretches over the orifices of the face, tightening and leaving the unfortunate person with a skull-like visage. If indeed our Eric had such a condition, it's no wonder he would seek accommodations away from the cold, unfeeling light. All of these things together prove little more than that Gaston Leroux had, with his exposure to news of the day and the opera, a lot of good material to pull from to craft such an epic, dark, and deadly romance. But it takes more than just good plot elements to craft a story, proven as timeless as the phantom. A quick reflection of the story reveals, beyond the obvious gothic horror elements, a meta-story. The building, the Palais Garnier, lends itself to so much in the way of metaphor, the deep, dark cellar's plunging into the deep prisons of one's mind, but also the archetypal inspirations, Persephone and Pluto, Dante and Beauty and the Beast and the Princess and the Frog, and pretty much all of Victor Hugo, especially The Man Who Laughs, which was also the inspiration for a Joker of the Batman comics, by the way, and also Victor Hugo's Hunchback of Notre Dame, the main character of that story wasn't human. It was the cathedral itself. The building was the main character. and Buildings are dripping with metaphor. And then there's the musical in the story itself. If you know anything about Faust and Mephistopheles, then you know the analogies. Diving into the underworld to find your love, only to fail. The power of drawing upon archetypal stories is timeless. And when combined with real events and the headlines, it's a work that tugs on the human soul in a way few contemporary tales do. It's the definition of art, is it not? Nonetheless, many fans and I say that with a PH, not an F, still hold that Gaston Leroux's deathbed insistence proves the truthfulness of his tale. The empirical evidence proves some of the events actually did occur, just not in the way he said they did. Although, I must admit, when I listen to Andrew Lloyd Webber's masterful musical or read the timeless words of Leroux, I do wonder if the Phantom did once exist. But that may only be inside my mind. I certainly hope you enjoyed finding the phantom. I love that these little plunges into history always reveal things that I never knew existed before, like the Paris Commune. If you feel the show is worth at least a dollar, your dollar would be very much appreciated. The patrons of the show help me offset the cost of production and research material. To become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com slash writteninbloodhistory. Another way to help out the show is to leave me a rating or review wherever you listen. This podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For an awesome selection of more great podcasts, go check out evergreenpodcast.com. If you want to get a hold of me, you can email me at stephen.dejulius at gmail.com. My Twitter handle is at sdejulius, or shoot me a message on the show Facebook page. As always, thank you for listening to Written in Blood History, and have a very happy Halloween. See you later. legally we can't say so for sure but sometimes yes join myself chris cogswell and my co-host marie mayhew as we examine the science philosophy and history behind the strange and unusual all to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's well just made up check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts the mad scientist podcast